I'm an alcoholic. My name's Steve. Steve. Um, I have a sobriety date of 6-2-19. I've only had one other sobriety date, and that was 4-19-1994. And I'm going to need to start at the first one in order to tell you my story. But I will get to the second one. Um, you know, it's funny. I... Uh, I wasn't going to talk too much about what it was like tonight and because uh, um, I really like talking about what happened and what it's like now, because I think that's what's important. But I've got a friend here that showed up, uh, Scott, and uh, I think I sponsored Scott 20 years ago. And uh, and we uh, um, he asked me to tell the story. So I'm going to tell that story. Um, you know, I started uh, drinking and using drugs in the summer of 1968. And uh, that's how old I am. And uh, anyways, uh, first time I drank, uh, I was at a junior high uh, dance. And uh, a friend of mine had stolen a uh, fifth of vodka. And him and another guy and I drank that fifth of vodka in about five minutes. And uh, I remember we were like down in this culvert behind some trees and we had to climb up the hill to get to where the dance was. And uh, I remember getting most of the way back up that hill and I don't remember anything else until the dance was over. And uh, that was kind of how my drinking and drug use went for the next 25 years. Um, I'm sure there were times that I didn't black out but I don't remember them. <laughs> it's kind of strange, isn't it? Um, most of the time I blacked out. And uh, um, when I got into high school, I developed this strange habit of, um, I could get um, alcohol on the weekends and drugs were much easier to get than alcohol back then until I turned 21. So I did a lot of drugs during the week. And uh, um, on the weekends, we would get alcohol. And I would drink myself into complete inebriation where I wouldn't remember anything. And I developed this habit of, I guess I enjoyed it because I did it all the time, but I liked to urinate on things other than the toilet. And I peed in the washer and dryer. I peed uh, on the curtains. I tried to pee on my stepfather once, but my mother saved my life. And, <laughs> I peed in everywhere. And uh, um, so this went along for a long time. And uh, um, I'm not really sure where it came from. I never peed in the bed. I always got to pee on something. And uh, so this was about six months before I got sober. This was the end of 1993. And uh, um, my wife and I were going to uh, go on a trip with another couple who lived up in Santa Maria, California. And uh, they were, uh, we all got in the hot tub and they all got beer and I didn't like beer at that point. So I got myself a quart of vodka and a hot tub and a quart of vodka, that works, you know, that will make you absolutely black out. And uh, so I, I must have blacked out at some point. And uh, um, I woke up about 6.30 the next morning and the, uh, the woman who was, uh, uh, 
whose house it was. She was standing at the end of the hallway. We were on this uh, blow up bed in the, in the living room and she was just leaning against the wall, staring at me. And uh, I looked up at her and she goes, do you know what you did last night? And well, they had a 16 year old daughter down the hall and I thought the worst. And, uh, um, and so I said, no. And uh, so what she related to me was that at uh, 2.30 in the morning, she woke up. I was standing in their bedroom with the light on, completely naked, with a shitting grin on my face, hosing them down <laughs> in their bed. You know, they took that really well. I would have kicked me out of the house, but they went on vacation with us. And I'm not really sure why they would have done that. But that, that in a nutshell is the kind of drunk I was. I did not drink for any kind of effect. I drank to not feel anything. And uh, um, there was a lot of reasons for that, but, but I used the medication and I used it not to feel anything whatsoever. Um, I had, uh, after that vacation, I started to get really ill. And uh, um, the, uh, the effects of that many years, 25 years of chugging vodka were catching up with me. And uh, so I started going to the emergency room and uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't go. Uh, I went there a couple of times and being a good alcoholic, you know, I lied to him about my drinking every time. No, I don't drink that much. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> no, you know, socially a couple of times a week. And I was drinking a quart a day. And uh, um, so they came to the decision that they were going to take out my gallbladder, that my gallbladder was bad. And I was perfectly willing to let them take out a perfectly good gallbladder if they wouldn't tell me I didn't, I couldn't drink anymore, you know? And uh, so they were doing the workup for the uh, surgery. And uh, the doctor came into the, into the room and uh, he told me, uh, Mr. McClellan, you haven't been being honest with us. Your, little, your liver panels are off the scale. You're an alcoholic and uh, you need to stop drinking now or you're probably gonna die. So I did what any self-respecting alcoholic would do. I stopped going to the doctor. <laughs> I took care of that problem there. And uh, I continued to drink. And uh, I had this distended spot on my right side and uh, um, it was getting worse. And uh, I had trouble remaining conscious even without drinking. I would uh, fall over in the house and just unconscious, just for no good reason. I usually had a cigarette between myself and the ground. So I burnt a lot of shirts up and a lot of the carpet, but uh, my wife was kind of fed up with me at the time. So she would generally uh, either push on me or kick me to get me to come to. And uh, I, would, I would get up. And uh, she told me that every night when I uh, would go to sleep, I would stop breathing and I would turn blue. And uh, I would do this over and over and over again. And she would stay up night after night after night hitting me in the back when I quit breathing. So I'd start breathing again. And finally, she got to the point that one night 
she said out loud to herself, I guess, she said, why don't you just fucking die so the rest of us can get on with our lives? And, uh, you know, I didn't find out about that for a while. But when I did find out about it, it really hurt my one alcoholic feeling that she would say something like that. I just didn't think that was very nice at all. And uh, so a couple weeks later, I would wake up at 3.30 every morning. I'd get in the shower. I was taking the toothbrush in the shower because I'd take a shower, get out of the shower, brush my teeth, throw up on myself and have to get back in the shower. So it was much easier just to get in the shower and brush your teeth. And uh, one morning I was uh, in the shower and I had this uh, happy thought that probably I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Maybe I should do something different. And uh, so I got out of the shower, dried myself off, went and woke my wife up. And I told her the happy news that I wanted to quit drinking. And this was probably the thousandth time that I've told her that. And uh, she got up and she went into the bathroom. She slammed the bathroom door, locked the bathroom door and said, I asked her to help me. And she said, hell no, I won't help you. If you want help, you know where to get it. And I knew what she meant. She meant Alcoholics Anonymous. And I really knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous at that point. The only thing I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous was that I didn't want Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not want anything to do with people in Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not want anything to do with it at all. So I told her, okay, because uh, uh, mostly because I thought she was getting ready to leave. But part of it was because I just had enough. I couldn't do it anymore. And uh, I went to work that day, and that was on April 19th. And uh, for the first day, and as long as I can remember, I had nothing to smoke, nothing to snort, nothing to drink. And by the time I got home, I was a mess. I was shaking. I was sweating. And I told her, look, I really want to go to this AA thing that you want me to go to, but, uh, but I'm shaking too much. I don't think I can drive myself over there. And uh, so she says, I'll drive you. And uh, there was a beginner's meeting. And uh, it was at the old Del Toro Club, which was on Raymond Way upstairs at the time. And uh, um, we went to that. And uh, I wanted to get there so I could sit in the back and, uh, you know, look at my shoes so nobody would, uh, nobody would uh, pay attention to me. And uh, she got us there like, five minutes late and we went into the place and there was only two seats left and that was next to the leader and the co-leader and they took a look at me and said right here young man come here sit down and uh so i went over and uh i uh i didn't have much self-esteem and i really couldn't look at people look them in the eye so i studied my shoes I spent a lot of time looking at my shoes and uh, I just looked down and uh, they, uh, uh, these people were sharing and uh, I understood everything they were saying. They were talking right out of my heart. And, uh, but I didn't know how to speak that language. I didn't know how to talk like they did. And uh, 
I went and I, uh, I listened to the meeting and uh, I don't know that I got hope, but I got through the meeting. And uh, um, after the meeting, this big guy comes up and he grabs my wife and he takes her off in another room. And I thought, what's this about, you know? And uh, that was where the Al-Anon meeting was. So she's been in Al-Anon ever since. And uh, that's almost 28 years ago. And uh, um, that, uh, that probably saved my life. And uh, five or six of these guys surrounded me and they all wanted to talk to me and tell me stuff. And uh, they got me a big book and they got a schedule and they circled this, this meeting at Oso and Marguerite for the following night and said, you need to be at this meeting here. And I said, oh, oh okay, yeah, I'll be there. Like hell, <laughs> I'm not going there. And uh, so I went home that night. And uh, oddly enough, without drugs and alcohol, I couldn't sleep. I was stoned awake. And uh, so the thought occurred to me that if I was to read that big book, I would probably get sleepy and fall asleep because <laughs> how, how interesting could it be? And uh, so I started reading it. I read the doctor's opinion and uh, I got into Bill's story. And uh, there were two passages on page 12 in Bill's story. And these two passages changed my life. And the first one was, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Now, I never thought about that. I always thought the God that uh, I was supposed to have was the Methodist church God. And uh, this was, I could choose my own conception of God. And then I read a little further down the page and it said, this is what, the one that really kind of blew me away. It said, because I didn't think that God cared much for me. I believe that he cared for other people, but I didn't think he cared much for me. And what it said in the book was, um, it said that God cares for us as human beings when we want him enough. And I never thought about that either. And so at that point, I remember looking up at the ceiling and uh, um, I didn't want to call God, God. So I said, ceiling, <laughs> I can't do this. I can't do this by myself. I need you to do this for me. And uh, that was the first prayer that I ever did in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, the ceiling must have been listening. Because I went to sleep at that point, and I woke up at my normal 3.30 the next morning. And uh, the obsession to drink and use drugs was gone. I mean, completely gone. And I couldn't go a day without drinking or using. And um, I have not had a drink since that day. I haven't tasted alcohol since that day. And uh, I... Uh, I started going to those meetings. I did go to that Wednesday night meeting, even though I wasn't going to. And uh, 
I went off and I got there early this time so I could go sit in the corner by myself and just be alone. And so I was sitting there and I was studying my shoes like I was prone to do at that time. And uh, all of a sudden I hear this guy sit down next to me. Oh, shit. (laughs) And I I hear this voice go, hey, how you doing? I didn't say anything. And he goes, what are you here for? And I said, that's a fucking dumb question. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm an alcoholic and I can't stop drinking. And he said, all right, maybe you have a chance. And uh, um, I didn't like him very much. <laughs> so he sat around and made small talk with me for a little while. And then, uh, then at the end of, uh, uh, at the end of that, um, he, he went away. And, uh, um, and uh, back then, the meetings were almost all 90 minutes. There were no hour meetings. They were all 90 minutes long. And uh, um, so they had a break to get to know the newcomers. The last thing I wanted to do was to get to know anyone. I just wanted to listen and get out of there. And uh, so I went outside and I tried to build this wall of smoke with my Marlboros that nobody could penetrate. And uh, Sure enough, that guy comes walking up to me and he's got his friend with him. And his friend ended up becoming my best friend and he ended up becoming my sponsor. And shows you what I know. And uh, um, they start telling me all these jokes and they're doing one after another after another and they're laughing and they're having a great time. And uh, I didn't think they were very funny. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I'm funnier than these guys are. I just can't talk right now. And uh, so the one thing that I thought was really funny was the friend stopped right in the middle of telling a joke. And he goes, Steve, I want you to know we aren't laughing with you. We're laughing at you. And I thought that was really funny, you know? And uh, so I made it through that meeting. And uh, the next day I went to my first gay meeting and I made it through that. And uh, um, I just started going to meetings all the time. And after uh, five or six days, I found this meeting called Do It Sober in the Morning. And um, I've been going to that meeting ever since. Whenever I came out from Vegas, I lived in Vegas a long time and I'll get to that. But whenever I lived in, when I lived in Vegas, I would, uh, I would come out and I would go to this meeting and I went to this meeting the first 10 years of my sobriety. So I asked this guy to sponsor me. And by the way, um, there's no newcomers here. And I was gonna tell the newcomers, you know, if you're completely full of shit, you can stay sober and Alcoholics Anonymous because I did. <laughs> I absolutely did. I, you know, I said earlier, I didn't know how to speak that language. So I would spend all my time in meetings listening to people and uh, um, trying to figure out what I would say if they called me to share. And uh, thank God they didn't call me very much. But I, uh, uh, 
I always had something wonderful to say that was just full of shit. And uh, um, that was the way it was for the first few months of my sobriety. I just went to meetings every day and uh, I faked it till I made it. Let's put it that way, you know? Um, I, uh, I thought I was fooling everybody. And uh, I'd worked the first three steps with my sponsor and I could tell he wasn't buying much. And uh, um, he said, you know, why don't we stop here? And uh, you work on the third step for a while till we go to the fourth step. And uh, I said, okay. And uh, so one Sunday I went to the do it sober meeting and uh, there on Sundays, we went into this room that was really long and really skinny. You could only fit one table down. And I always sat at the back with my back against the wall. And uh, I was daydreaming and not thinking about what I was going to say if they called on me. And uh, sure enough, they called on me. And uh, I didn't know what to say. So I was honest for the first time in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I told them I thought they were all full of shit. I hated Alcoholics Anonymous. I hated everything about it. I hated what they did. I didn't want to be there. And I was angry that I had to. I was angry that I couldn't stop drinking on my own. And uh, I finished and uh, I thought, oh Jesus, I just wrecked the last place I could go to. You know, um, they know what I think of them now. And uh, so the meeting ended. And I remember trying to get out of that meeting as quick as I could without anybody talking to me. And this one woman, she was about five foot tall. She was a nurse, her name was Tamar. She stood right in my way and stuck out her hand and said, welcome Steve, we've been wondering when you join us. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, they knew I was full of shit the whole time. <laughs> And uh, so that began my journey on Alcoholics Anonymous, trying to be who I was and be a real person, you know, not be a, uh, not, not be something that, that I thought other people wanted me to be. Um, my sponsor and my best friend, they were all about service. And uh, they did a lot at Charlie Street and uh, um, they took me with them. And uh, I started volunteering there. And uh, I did it with them for the first year. And then when I had a year, I got my own committee and I started to uh, do that. So I was doing it every six and a half weeks. I was going to Charlie Street for a week. And uh, at 10 months, I, uh, I started going to the H and I meetings because you had to go to three meetings and you couldn't get a panel till you got a year. So I wanted a panel when I had a year. So I went to those and uh, um, I got my first panels and uh, um, they were all uh, hospital rehab places. I wasn't ready to go to jail yet. That was too scary. And, uh, but I had a lot of friends that were really supportive. You know, they would come up to Charlie Street and they would hang with me. And uh, 
I had some of the best times in sobriety up there. Some of the fun, funnest times, laugh the hardest. And uh, the H and I, I would always ask one or two people from the meetings to go to the, to go to the panel with me and to share their experience, strength, and hope. And uh, um, they always came. And uh, my friend Mary here, who's been my friend from the very beginning, um, she went with me to a lot of panels. And uh, um, I'm pretty sure she didn't want to, but she went. <laughs> and uh, I had another friend that got sober with me named Paul. And uh, um, he would go all the time too. And so we'd go to these hospitals and institutions and we'd talk to these people. And, uh, and I don't know that they got anything out of what we said, but I sure did. When I left there, I was on top of the world. I felt, I felt, I felt the spirit inside of me. I felt Alcoholics Anonymous inside of me. And, um, you know, when Mary, speaking of Mary, when, uh, um, when I wasn't too long sober, I was uh, given the uh, coffee uh, commitment and setting up commitment for the Osa Marguerite meeting which was about 120 people. So you had to get there two hours early. And uh, she would show up every week and just talk to me. And uh, um, it helped me stay sober to the next week. You know, it got me through that. There was so much that was, I had so many years that I, spent getting fucked up. It took a while for that fucked up to get out of my head, you know? And uh, um, I'm lucky that I had people that loved me that were willing to love me until I could love myself. And uh, that's what this program's all about. It's about people loving people. And, uh, you know, we work the steps and by working the steps, it really transforms us as human beings. And once we do that, we have the ability to love someone else. We have the ability to give of ourselves without expecting anything in return. And uh, that was the thing that I really learned most from my sponsor was to be of service. And uh, I sponsored a lot of guys at Charlie Street. I remember he told me when I first started doing it, hey, Steve, uh, Get used to doing the first three steps. You'll do those a lot. And uh, he was right. I did the first three steps a lot. I didn't get to the fourth step with very many people. But it didn't matter. Every time I did a first step, every time I did a second step, every time I did a third step with somebody, I, uh, I got something out of it. I felt great afterwards. Didn't matter how they felt. You know, it, it really was how I felt. And I didn't ask for that, it just came. It was one of those miracles of the program, I guess, that, that you give something to someone and you expect nothing in return and you get so much more than you give. And that's been true in everything I've done. You know, um, talking about the love in Alcoholics Anonymous, um, 
my home group. I was uh, about seven years sober. And by then I was doing jails. I wasn't afraid of those anymore. So I was going to jails by myself every month. And uh, I enjoyed that a lot. But um, my uh, daughter started having these horrible headaches. She was 10 years old. And uh, um, one uh, Saturday, we found out that she had a brain tumor. And uh, we had to take her up to Children's Hospital. And um, I went that Saturday night and stayed there till about three in the morning. And then I went home and I just prayed for a few hours. And uh, I kept saying, dear God, please heal my daughter. Dear God, please heal my daughter. And then about every 10 times I choked out, if it be thy will. I didn't mean it because I wanted him to heal my daughter. But I said it because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pray for God's will and the power to carry that out. And, uh, you know, I went to that meeting at 7.30 that morning. And I, I told the people in the meeting about what was going on. And uh, that day, 50 people showed up in the hospital room, in the oncology ward of Children's Hospital, wanting to know, you know, wanting to visit, wanting to know what they could do for us, wanting to know what they could, how they could help my daughter. And uh, that love, I don't know where else in the world you find that. I, I truly don't. It was overwhelming. And uh, um, they told my wife and I that uh, my daughter probably wouldn't be the same human being on Tuesday that she was then because of the tumor and them having to take it out. And uh, that was hard to swallow. But we went through to the surgery day and uh, they had a room just for parents. We had 27 people in that room, all from Alcoholics Anonymous and all from Al-Anon. And uh, there to support us. And uh, I was overwhelmed by that. I just, I just was overwhelmed by the love and the outpouring that, that people gave me with expect nothing in return. They just love me and they just love my wife and they love my daughter. And uh, so my daughter ended up coming through the surgery. They got the tumor out and uh, she, uh, she went, uh, she had to go through about, I don't know, nine months of rehab to get all of her functions back. But, but she's 31 today and she lives in Utah and she's doing great. Um, she didn't talk to me, but that's another story. <laughs> but she's okay, you know, and that's what's important. Um, so I got through that. And uh, um, I don't know if you've ever heard the saying that uh, if you want to make God laugh, tell me your plans. And uh, I was doing really good. We were making a ton of money and uh, we had all the toys you could want. We had an RV, we had a boat, we had jet skis. We were going on vacations all the time. We were uh, uh, 
we're doing all these things. We're going to, we just, we went to Hawaii and uh, I'm thinking, you know, this is pretty good. I got it going on. Had a house on the golf course in Mission Viejo, which I wish I hadn't sold. <laughs> that's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so I had all this going on and I thought, God, this is a great life, you know? And uh, so we got back from Hawaii. We spent two weeks there on Maui, my, 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 my kids and my wife and I. And uh, um, I was thinking how good things were going. And uh, God had other plans. And uh, so I, uh, I was nine and a half years sober. And uh, my, uh, uh, it was about two months later, that I was getting this thing done in my back and this, this nurse said, hey, this mole on your back, how long you had it? Said, I don't know. And she said, I want you to go to a doctor today. Okay, promise me you'll go to a doctor today. Like, what the fuck's this, you know? And uh, so I promised her and I went to the doctor and it turned out it was melanoma. And uh, um, it was not only melanoma, it ended up being stage three melanoma. And uh, they told me, five minutes, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> I told you I'd never get through all of it. Okay, anyways, uh, quickly. The, uh, uh, I went through the treatment for the melanoma. I went through the chemo and it ruined my body. It ruined my limbs and I was in extreme pain. And uh, we had to go uh, sell our house. I had to take a $90,000 cut in pay and go on disability. And uh, we uh, ended up moving to Vegas. And uh, the short version of this is I spent the next 15 years on pain medication because I couldn't stand pain. And uh, in April of 19, I took a uh, 25 year chip and uh, it was a clean chip. I'd never taken the drugs any other way than the doctor told me to take them. And I went to, uh, I went to, uh, I was getting this uh, neurotransmitter put in me the next month that was supposed to be able to get me off the drugs. And uh, they put it on me and they had been weaning me off the drugs. And I got down, from 270 to 30 months. And uh, I had a psychotic break and I went completely nuts. And uh, I was having delusions of grandeur and they put me in the uh, uh, psych ward for three days. And uh, I guess I wasn't very cooperative because the next 10 days I was handcuffed to it, the bed. And uh, two months later, they still weren't gonna let me out. And so, being a good alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, I signed myself out against medical advice. And uh, I left there and I was completely insane. And uh, I went to, I was, I decided to drive back to Vegas at 10.30 at night. And uh, I ended up getting in this horrible accident with a, a semi and having to be air flown to, uh, to the hospital in Las Vegas. They had to do two surgeries on my heart, save my life. And uh, so after two months, 
I spent 10 days in the cardiac ward at UMC. And uh, I remember the nurse when I woke up, I didn't wake up for five days. And when I woke up on the fifth day, she looked at me and she said, Steve, you're alive. And uh, I just looked at her and she goes, you know, God must have a plan for you because you should be dead. And uh, I never forgot that. She, uh, uh, she then told me that, uh, she didn't tell me, but they wouldn't let me leave the hospital unless I went back to a psych hospital because I was still crazy. And uh, so they put me in the psych hospital uh, at Seven Hills in Las Vegas. I spent a week or two there and then they wouldn't let me out unless I went to a 30 day rehab. Well, I'm thinking to myself, well, I got 25 years. I don't need a 30 day rehab, but I had no brain to speak of. I couldn't remember virtually anything. I had a blackout for two months and I went to that and I got through that and I just started to get my senses back. And at that point, my wife had left, moved to Utah. My children wouldn't talk to me. I spent every dime we had. The only thing that we had left was the house that we're selling right now. Everything else was gone. And uh, um, I have no idea why I did it. Uh, it just happened. It happened in, in a psychotic break. And I lost everything. And uh, so I called my wife up and I, I asked her if uh, I had done anything during the blackout that would screw up my sobriety. And she said, well, there was two weeks where you took more pills than you were supposed to. And uh, I, uh, that hit me kind of hard because I always prided myself on being a sober man. And, uh, but, you know, I tried to justify it for a couple of minutes that I was in a blackout and whatever, but I was responsible for every vodka blackout I've ever had. Why wouldn't I be responsible for this? And so I had to, uh, I had to spend the next week going to every meeting that I went to and telling all of my friends that I'd broken my sobriety and I needed to start over again. And you know what? The love of AA happened again because they were all, they were all, uh, I'll probably make it. They, they, uh, um, they, all, uh, they all were very supportive. They said, you know, we're just glad that you didn't go on a run. And uh, which I didn't, I never missed Alcoholics Anonymous. I was either in a psych hospital or at a meeting. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, yeah, there you go. You know, what the, what our chip says and what William Shakespeare wrote in Hamlet was above all else to thine own self be true. And I could not live with myself taking dirty chips just to have time. And so I started over again. And uh, wasn't easy at first, but it got easier as time went on. And it got to the point where it just doesn't matter. I am who I am today. I got a new sponsor when I got out of there. Um, I worked the steps again. I started going to two meetings a day, every day. I still do that just about. And uh, um, 
it took about two years, but my brain's mostly back. I mostly have my memories back. You know, a lot of the stuff I told you tonight, I don't remember two years ago, two and a half years ago. And uh, um, I just thank God. And I think the program, and I'll call it synonymous, that it gave me a foundation that I could live with, you know, that I could live on. I could lean on when I needed to. And uh, I think that's about all I can say. So thank you for listening. <laughs>